Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a major exhibition on mid-20th century German art. My first guest is Lynette Roth, the curator of Inventor, Art in Germany, 1943-55, to which is at the Harvard Art Museums through June 3rd. It's the first exhibition to examine art made in Germany by artists who stayed in Germany throughout World War II. Inventor presents more than 160 works made by 50 artists, art made when Germans were forced to acknowledge and address the war, the Holocaust, their defeat and occupation by the Allies, and the beginning of the Cold War. The fascinating exhibition catalog, which is full of new discoveries and analysis, was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $55. If the name Lynette Roth sounds familiar, that's because she's been on the Man podcast before. While she's the head of modern and contemporary art at the Harvard Art Museum, she was previously a guest on episode 192, when she discussed her catalog of the St. Louis Art Museum's terrific Max Beckman collection. On the second segment, J. Paul Getty Museum curator Maisie Harris on her show Paper Promises. But first, Lynette Roth, after a break. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, sight, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Now through April 15th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Lynette Roth, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So great to be back, Tyler. Your show starts in 1943, which to anyone who knows their 20th century dates seems like starting in the middle of something rather than at the beginning or end of something, at least as we're talking about Germany. So why 1943? Well, you're exactly right. It's not exactly the middle of something, but I chose to start the exhibition at the end of the Second World War because often we think about the sort of immediate post-war period uh, in Germany as and elsewhere as really beginning in 1945. So, you know, we talk about art after 1945 and, and the post-war. And often, certainly for the German art history of this period, uh, often we don't even get those initial years after the Second World War. And so what I wanted to do was kind of pull back from sort of what what has been long uh, referred to in, in, in Germany as the zero hour or the so-called Stunde Null of 45. So the idea that somehow, you know, there was this radical break or this kind of ability to have a fresh new beginning. And I'm signaling that by starting an exhibition that is really about 
immediate post-war period, but starting it actually in 1943. Uh, and I chose 43 for a number of reasons. Some of the sort of very important works that become kind of the icons of that immediate post-war period were actually made in and around 1943. Uh, it was the year of uh, the defeat of the Germans at Stalingrad, an increase in Allied bombings of German cities. And so it's really the year in which the war for many Germans really literally comes home. And that was also a very important theme for the exhibition as a whole was Germany's role in the war, modern artists who had stayed in Germany during the war and, and still continued to produce art in often in secret, and then the sort of rebuilding of the art scene in Germany after the war's end. Let me fill in a couple of things there. Uh, 1943, you you mentioned bombing in Germany. Of course, that was the year in which the British bombed Hamburg, the worst British bombing raid in Germany, at least to that point. And you also mentioned that most of the artists, maybe all of the artists in your show, spent the Nazi years in, in Germany. I think we're all familiar through lots of books and exhibitions in both Europe and the United States about the artists who left Germany. Who are some of the artists who stayed in, in, in Germany during the Nazi years? Why did they stay? Did some not have the opportunity to leave because, say, they were too young? Yeah, sort of. All of the above, um, I guess, to the to the question of who stayed, you know, we do really know very well, actually, thanks to a number of in- incredible exhibitions, the the exile story, the emigres, the especially those who came to the United States. So, you know, we need only think of Max Beckmann or the Bauhaus emigres. And that's really the story that we've learned about German art of this period. And while a lot of those artists were also unable to work in Germany, already beginning in the 1930s and certainly in 1937 with the infamous degenerate art exhibition and larger campaign, it became very clear that it would be impossible to continue to work in Germany as a modern artist. And so, you know, artists then still continue to leave Germany. However, the bulk of the German artists that were in the Degenerate Art Show, for example, actually stayed in Germany. Uh, And that's not the story that we've typically been told. And they stayed, and for many, many scholars have referred to that as an inner immigration which was a term that actually was first used by Ernst Barlach, an expressionist sculptor already in 1938. So after the Degenerate Art Exhibition and and the major um, campaign and really a kind of sealing of the Nazi strictures against modern art. And so Barlach uses this term and then artists themselves begin to use this term. And one of the themes of the exhibition really is that we're looking at 48 different artists all of whom stayed in Germany during the Nazi period and during the war, but under very different circumstances across Germany. So, you know, in, in cities, in, in smaller areas. And, and, and that's actually to show that inner immigration can mean as many things as there are artists, right? Uh, that every individual artist had their own kind of unique history during, during that period. And, um, you, you had asked who these artists were. Some of them were some of the most prominent artists of the Weimar Republic. So we have, for example, Willy Baumeister, 
who was uh, teaching in Frankfurt in uh, 1933 and lost his teaching position uh, when the Nazis came to power. He's able then during the war to do various different kinds of work, including at a lacquer factory in Wuppertal, where he did very experimental panels that were in some ways under the guise of, you know, testing the material qualities of the lacquer that the factory was producing, but actually, you know, really thinking about those experiments in the sort of larger history of of art and culture. And it was planned to actually be a book called Modulation and Patina. And that book actually never came out because of the war and wasn't published then until the 1980s, long after Baumeister and many of its contributors had died. So we have someone like that who's you know continuing to work. He also then eventually goes into isolation with his family near the Swabian Alps and just makes hundreds and hundreds of drawings because he's unable to paint, um, he's unable to get, you know, large uh, materials. And so we have an incredible body of work of drawing where, you know, we see him, you know, still working through a lot of his formal vocabulary of the 20s and, and 30s. And then we see him in the immediate post-war period really becoming one of the most important proponents of modern art and you know, teaching the next generation of artists. And so, and so that's an example of someone who really underscores the continuity of German art, right, throughout sort of the first half of the 20th century. And he actually dies in 1955, which is the year I chose to end the exhibition. Yeah, so this is not an exhibition of the Beckmans and the Ernsts. It is, it is of those who stayed. It, it, as I read the catalog... I thought about how much less work on this period and these artists in this place American art historians have done compared to, say, American science historians, which have, in the last 15 or 20 years, spent a lot of time on kind of the circle around Heisenberg and and the German bomb effort. The show takes uh, a surprising starting point, at least surprising to me, and, and that starting point is your observation that a great deal of German post-war art or art in these years focused on material objects that could be or were owned by an individual, a picture frame, a coffee cup, and so on. How did you come to realize that or to notice that and, and, and realize that it might be important? Well, I looked at a lot of art from this period. So, in fact, that was really, you know, the the very beginning was, you know, really, I mean, I knew as well, you know, the the Willy Baumeisters and the Hannah Hirschs and, you know, a lot of the artists who, you know, I had also worked quite intensively up until this point on the Weimar period in Germany. So I was very familiar with sort of that generation, but I wanted to also get away from those sort of usual suspects or those that were more well-received, say, in the 1950s, even in the United States. And so basically what I did is I reached out to my colleagues in Germany who, you know, work at German museums and other collecting institutions and basically said, I need from you a list of all of the German artists in your collection from the year 1942 to 1956, right? And they said, what? (laughs) And very generously put together a list from their databases and 
and other sources and uh, began to, they kind of began to trickle in. I had a, a wonderful curatorial fellow here at the Bush Reisinger Museum, Ilka Furman, and she and I really kind of poured through these lists, also from American institutions. So we did the same for American museums. And, you know, quite frankly, in the beginning, I didn't know many of those artists and began then working kind of from this, you know, list of sort of thousands of names and artwork to trying to sort of hone in on, okay, who in in the various zones, right, because Germany was divided into zones of occupation in the immediate post-war period, who was really kind of active, who was out there, you know, really kind of trying to reintroduce the public to modern art and who was exhibiting or who was writing um, or who was giving lectures, you know, so, so really wanting those figures who also really, you know, grab that opportunity in that immediate post-war moment. And then in order to have a view of Germany as a whole, because that's another thing about this period, we can't, you know, nowadays, you know, we think about art centers in Germany and we think about Berlin and Berlin and Berlin. <laughs> and, you know, that was just not the case. And in fact, there were many centers in Germany in the immediate post-war period that were critical, uh, like Stuttgart, where Willy Baumeister was then teaching, or uh, Recklinghausen in the industrial Ruhr region. So I wanted to also get at those pockets and those very compelling uh, stories. And so, you know, then it kind of out of all of that and a lot of looking, you know, visited countless institutions and viewed the works in person. And, you know, so, so it was really something where I said, okay, this, if I'm going to do this and actually have a new perspective, then I need to kind of start from, from the work. And as I started looking at the work, I was, you know, I was often very surprised at what I was seeing. And I, I did start to notice this, you know, obviously there was an intense fascination and sort of, you know, incredible, I don't want to say infatuation, but, you know, literally kind of obsessive, uh, compulsive, almost depiction of the ruinscape. So, I mean, we get that in a lot of the work from the 1940s. So that wasn't that surprising because it's, you know, was actually where these artists were living and they were reacting to that. But I started to see then and these reflections of both the human figure. So we have a lot of heads, we have a lot of sort of portraits of, of the self or, you know, kind of uh, human, human form, but also then these kind of, yeah, objects, as I said, of, of everyday life and, and really the domestic realm. And then it kind of clicked at some point. I said, well, you know, if you're looking at the ruinscape, right, and you're thinking about, the destabilization between you know, the exterior and the interior and this kind of private space and, and a public space, right? Then it makes sense that actually you take recourse to those things that make you uh, human, right? That, that sort of are the, the things that we've sort of invented, right? In order to survive our clothing, our, what we eat from, the chairs that we sit on to make, you know, to make our lives more uh, comfortable and productive. And so that then really became, uh, became a guiding theme. From there, you argue that the moral stock-taking of, of German artists in the war's aftermath is rooted in and reflected in this art of everyday life, of this very stuff. Could you give us a couple of examples of how we kind of see 
everyday objects kind of morphing, if that's the right word, into moral stock taking of of Germany and its and, and and what happened. Right. So again, you know, nothing nothing in this period is overt. I think you know certainly this attention to the everyday object or to of course, also, I argue, you know, they're using those everyday objects to literally make art because of the material scarcity. But more important than that, I would say something like, and I use it as also a very important key work in the exhibition is a drawing done by Kurt Kferner in a POW camp after the war. Kurt Kferner had been in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, a critical sort of realist painter and a dedicated communist. And his work at that time really reflected his political stance. And in the POW camp after the war, he is drawing and, and painting sort of obsessively, you know, the stool that he has there that's kind of cobbled together out of pieces of wood and tied together with a piece of string, right? So it's almost a stretch to call it, you know, a stool and the bed that he slept in and the cans of food that he was eating from and, and these kinds of things. And in his diaries, and it's wonderful, we actually have diaries of the artist from this period. Um, he says, you know, I was finally able to get some paper and to get some pencils and some paint and some materials. And uh, the only thing that I am, that's kind of of coming out of me, right, that I'm kind of putting on paper or or on cardboard is, is a totally bourgeois affair. So he's, he's criticizing himself, right, that, that, He's not actually able in this moment, right, in this kind of, you know, immediate post-war moment to, to do what he did back in, in the 30s. And that was very striking to me because his turn to those objects is also repetitive, right? So you get like, you know, multiple different versions of that same stool. And so those were the kinds of things where I started realizing, okay, there's more than than a still life going on here. You know, there, this is about something, something bigger. And, and I think actually, a, you know, a kind of questioning of one's own role, one's own role, certainly as an artist and how, you know, how does one actually sort of begin to, to work again? And I mean, most Germans were not political um, after the war. That observation leads to my next question. Is, is your argument that this moral stock taking was necessary for or opened the door to broader examinations of German culpability and the Nazi horrors. I mean, when we when we think of German artists and indeed the broader culture examining, you know, the ordinary German's own culpability in the Nazi era, we think, of course, of, of Richter and his great and famous painting of his uncle Rudy from 1961. But we're talking about a quarter century before that. Um, are you, are you, are you, is your argument that this work was necessary, had to happen before Germany could get to that more famous period of self-examination? Well, I think really Hannah Arendt sort of said it best in, in her report after visiting Germany, you know, one of the criticisms of Germans and at this time is that they, they don't seem to be reflecting right? They seem to be sort of going about their business and, you know, 
taking care of, of uh, the ruins and kind of, you know, starting to rebuild. And with that, uh, that struck me as well, right? If I was thinking about, you know, why this return to, to the kind of domestic sphere? Well, you know, I think, I think the domestic sphere is sort of the first thing or the private sphere is sort of the first thing that maybe does. And Arendt says this, you know, eight years later in uh, the human condition, you know, that the private sphere is absolutely essential before one can actually be political or, you know, kind of be active in a, in a more public, public space. And I guess my argument is, you know, to a certain extent, and of course, I would say every artist case study is, is an individual one, right? So I would not want to sort of generalize across the board. But I do think that that sort of immediate reaction was the reaction that perhaps, you know, was indicative of that time and of, you know, sort of reactions more broadly uh, across Germany, right? It's been called as this period of collective amnesia. And it's then in the 1960s when we get this kind of, you know, very politicized public space, right? This very sort of public conversation where then the immediate post-war period is, you know, is pretty much written off, right? Because the, the feeling was, well, well, why weren't they? You know, where are the where are the depictions of the camps, uh, not the POW camps, the concentration camps, you know, where are the, where is the reckoning, you know, directly or in some kind of overt way with the Holocaust. And, you know, you're not going to find it. I mean, I didn't find it. I found it in the work of artists who had left Germany, uh, like Leah Grundig, uh, who was a Jewish artist and uh, left Germany for Palestine and stayed there until later and then actually came back and was an important figure in the German Democratic Republic. So, you know, she was not a part of my exhibition because actually in those critical years, she was actually not in in Germany. So, you know, that story is told by various different artists from various different perspectives. But by showing the work, I think I would also let, you know, the visitors come to their own conclusions, right? What I, I guess what I'm asking is that we look at this work on its own terms and in its own historical context. And for me, by doing that, I think we can understand a lot more about the 1960s, about a figure like Gerhard Richter, who, you know, also did a lot of work before he got to Uncle Rudy and, you know, was the student of Kao Goetz, who's featured very prominently in our exhibition. So, you know, I think there are ways in which, you know, these these figures who we now know quite well, I think, in the United States, I think we can discover dimensions of that that we, we, we haven't been able to discover because we haven't been paying attention to the, the decades prior. I think Americans often think of Richter and Polka as responding to American pop, American pop art. But I think what you just talked about in terms of German artists in the mid to late 40s and 50s making art of everyday life provides another way of thinking about Richter and Polka in, in particular. In your catalog essay, you identify four key periods into which you kind of loosely break stuff up. Let me, let me kind of list them, and then we'll get into each one. First, the final years of the war, then the immediate post-war period up until about 1948 or so, at which point there's a period of and then after currency reform 
where the economy begins to come back and we begin to see that reflected in, in art making. And then the final of the, the four periods is the years just before the beginning of the so-called West German economic miracle. So that, that, that gets us to the end of the show in 1955. So let's jump into the final years of the war. There are two artists I wanted to ask you about first, and I apologize in advance for my pronunciation here, Euro Kubitschek. Oh, that was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm so Kubitschek. relieved. <laughs> Kubitschek, his daughter tells me. And in the mid-1940s, we don't know the exact year, he made a work called Mein Krampf. What is it and what does it tell us about how he and possibly, probably other Germans were beginning to think about Hitler and his impacts? So Mein Kampf literally takes Hitler's Mein Kampf, so his My Struggle, and takes, takes the book and inserts into it Kubitzek's, but also some of his own very close artist colleagues from, uh, from the period, like Hans Kiemann, uh, artists who uh, like Kubitzek actually in are in Berlin and after the war will become a kind of central group um, within the Berlin art scene. And so Kubitzek is basically very much inspired by Dadaist photo montage and I would say John Hartfield in particular. In fact, the book actually does include a reproduction of a work uh, by John Hartfield. John Hartfield, notoriously one of the most outspoken artists, anti-fascist artists in Germany already in the the 20s and, and 30s. So Kubitschek is really very actively sort of picking up on that tradition and, and the use of photo montage and begins then within this my book my struggle by 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 changing just one letter in the title he's changing it from my struggle to my cramp so already you can see this kind of you know that is this sort of very irreverent playful but also you know highly critical and bi- biographically pointed as well yes exactly given hitler's digestive <laughs> issues Digestive issues, that's right. And this is a book that then, you know, stayed in his possession and, uh, you know, was uh, belonged to his daughter and now um, is with a, a different owner. But it was something that a German colleague of mine had brought to my attention and said, you know, given given the project that you're working on, you know, first of all, you, you need to really think about Kubitschek, but you also, you really need to see this book. And I was, you know, I was pretty much blown away by the fact that this was this was the kind of thing that was happening in again a very private but also still collaborative environment and that sort of stayed with me and so I was very happy that that we could include it in the exhibition and then Kubitschek you know continues to be a, actually a very exciting artist in the immediate post-war period and we have three other photo montages, photo collages by him uh, in the inventory exhibition as well. So really a, a kind of first for American audiences, although he actually taught briefly in the United States back in the 40s. And actually at that time saw the work of Jackson Pollock and began to make his own sort of drip paintings, which everyone was very excited about in Germany until they realized that he <laughs> maybe seen Pollock. But, you know, a fabulous artist, actually really, I think, uh, one of uh, one of the great discoveries, hopefully, for audiences of, of Inventor. Another work from this period that begins to transition toward the post-war work is a 1945 untitled watercolor by uh, Otto Peony. It's called Untitled Sketch of Night Sky. 
anyone who sees the the Anton Kiefer watercolors that are up at the Met right now will probably immediately imagine that 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 Kiefer knew knew yeah. these works of paintings. <laughs> I actually don't. I actually don't know that he did, but it, it was exactly. You're exactly right. Um, it feels like it feels like Kiefer watercolor. Yeah, I mean, they just. Feel, I'm, you know, Kiefer's a guy new and knows his history, so one just assumes. So, where does this peony watercolor come from? Why was it something you wanted in the show? What does it point to? So, the watercolor by Ochipina is it's actually in a sketchbook that also, you know, he kept and it's now in, in his estate. He had actually a continuous, nearly continuous sketchbook practice that really begins actually when he's already a young child. The sort of the tragedy of Otto Pina is that he was actually already drafted into the German military at age 15. So he's sort of one of this notorious generations of child soldiers during the Nazi period. And uh, what he uh, the task he was given was to watch the night sky and and work together with the anti-aircraft bombers on the German side. And so you imagine this, you know, 15-year-old boy, uh, and in fact, you know, there are letters of, of him, you know, to his mother. I mean, this is a this is a, a young child, really, and he is keeping, though, continuously a sketchbook. And he actually says, you know, after the war, you know, what I had left was my was my sketchbook, you know, and 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 this scene of the night sky, which is again so striking. It's just one of many wonderful watercolors in the in that sketchbook from from the sort of end of the end of the war. We see already so much of what will become or who will become the Autopina that we know of the zero group of sky art, his kind of ongoing uh, attention to to the sky. So something that had been really an object of fear becomes actually his sort of literally his his canvas in many ways, right? So he's he's doing a large inflatables. He's he's working really with with the sky as his as his medium. And I just thought that was a really wonderful moment for showing how m- many of the contemporary artists. I mean, Pina, we associate with the, la- the you know, the, the end of the 1950s, right? Certainly the, the 1960s and 70s, and not with, you know, this, this kind of core experience where he was already, you know, had a, had a daily practice of, of sketching and, and viewing, the, viewing the world. In the catalog, there are also two of his sketches, one of, of him in an oversized military coat. He's, he's 15 years old and swimming in this thing. And another of a flat gun. We'll try to get images of, of both of those for the website because I think they relate to what you were you were talking about. Next section is on the immediate post-war period. We talked a little bit earlier about artists and and everyday objects. And one artist who might provide a good example is Werner Helt, who in in a painting such as Still Life at the Window is making a Cubist picture in which cubism is less a pictorial convention than it is a way of painting kind of what was actually going on. I mean, kind of cubist space was made into to real space. Cubist objects were indeed the very objects that that were not blown to bits and that were accessible. And we see here on a on a on a table a a picture frame and a pitcher and a, a tea kettle and a, and a striped tabletop cover, just kind of classic cubist stuff. 
do we think health was kind of consciously making that relationship between pre-war pre-wars <laughs> avant-garde practice and contemporary life in germany oh yes and i think you know one of the one of the criticisms not of of health specifically but of the period more generally was that it you know it it, it wasn't a kind of a revolution of new forms right but that we actually do recognize and you've teased out many of them already we we recognize a lot of these forms right so we do see in in health that cubist still life and you know many germans were actually very straightforward about the fact that you know their everyday reality looked like surrealism. Heinz Tölkis, also an artist in the show, you know, also plays with this idea, right? So his painting, Dance on Shaky Ground, is, you know, both a sort of reflection on the, you know, the reality of, of Germany uh, at that time, and also, you know, pointing to his surrealist heroes and, and predecessors. So I think, you know, for someone like Held, the painting that you refer to, which we were actually very uh, lucky to be able to acquire for the Bush Reisinger Museum, and held again not an not an artist who's known in the United States, but very highly uh, revered in Germany. He started that series, which he called Berlin at the Sea, already in 1940, before he is then actually drafted. So already in 1940, he's beginning to reflect on this idea that he also, you know. It's, Kind of a funny title, Berlin at the Sea, right? If you've been to Berlin, you know it's definitely not anywhere near the sea. This notion that, you know, everything that we make, right? So again, this attention to the things that humans make, that all of that, everything that we create, whether it's architecture or, you know, a, a picture frame or, you know, art is going to eventually be uh, reclaimed by nature, Right? So he's already sort of has a sort of prognosis about where technology and where our sort of human ego about the, the sort of stability of the things that we build or the things that we make and our kind of unfettered confidence in those objects and those things. And he's basically, you know, saying, nope. And so you see these waves, you know, going through the picture, which are also could also be the rubble of of post-war Berlin, but you start to see where that still life is positioned really in the space between interior and exterior. And, you know, so for me, it was not only the uh, sort of perfect example for the Inventura exhibition and a lot of the themes, but just, you know, really a fabulous painting by Held. Yeah, it's a terrific, terrific picture. We'll, we'll have it on manpodcast.com. As we kind of get toward 1948 and currency reform, there begins to be, in pockets of Germany, greater material prosperity and recovery. One of the ways we see that is artists making, say, collage from big glossy magazines, who might be a good example. Hannah Hirsch, who's our, you know, a, a, like Billy Baumeister, right, a major figure in the Weimar Republic. But also we had a, a sort of new discovery, certainly for us, um, and I, I would argue even for most uh, Germans, um, and that was Louise Rösler, another woman artist who was working and exhibiting uh, in the immediate post-war period and was really reveling in the candy wrappers and, and literally sort of detritus that was dropped by the occupying soldiers in the small town near near Frankfurt where she was actually living. In fact, she had been 
sort of evacuated from Berlin with her young daughter during the war, as many women were. And that was sort of another story, right? Another kind of artist biography that we were interested in, in telling. And yet she's also, you know, just thrilled at these shiny objects, these very different, brightly colored pieces of plastic and pieces of paper. And those make her their way into collages that she titles the street or, you know, woman in a room. And we get a woman in a kind of incredible sort of domestic interior. So that's a very exciting example of also the continuation of how artists were continuing to salvage, right? They just had better more exciting and more brightly colored things to play with. I'm glad you mentioned her. Uh, I was not someone I knew reading through the catalog um, and and works of hers, the museum acquired just last year. The uh, The show ends in 1955 and in the years, and in work from the years just before that, we begin to see abstraction return in, in, in works such as, oh, I don't know, I liked the Hermann Glockners in the show. How, how might we read them? Well, think about Hermann Glückner as he was always working in abstraction. And so that's another you know, great example of, of the continuity of his uh, practice. Uh, some of the works we have in the show, for example, two sculptures called A Spatial Refraction of a Rectangle. One of those is actually a, a two-scale reproduction of a work of his from 1935 that he lost in the bombing of Dresden, uh, so a kind of act, again, of, of recovery of his earlier work. And then, you know, we end in the exhibition with, you know, an incredible work of his on panel, also something that he had done since the 1930s, uh, where we see sort of folded, sort of thin folded paper on a, on a two-dimensional surface. And so we get a sense, you know, how important uh, the fold uh, was for him as a, as a sculptor, but also someone working in two dimensions. And, you know, the wonderful thing about Gluckner is that, you know, he continued to make this abstract work throughout the German Democratic Republic. And that's really sort of been the, the, the sort of major attention to him. In fact, his uh, attention to him has grown since since there have been sort of several exhibitions and important museum acquisitions of his work. But the strongest holdings actually are in the Kupferschicht cabinet in Dresden, the sort of graphic collection of Dresden. He lived in Dresden and the director throughout the German Democratic Republic was collecting his work. And, you know, he's one of these wonderful examples of artists who also, for, you know, for a long time didn't get the kind of attention he's deserved. And the last 10 years have really uh, changed that. One of the things I was really impressed that the show and catalog don't do is that they you, you don't make one-to-one connections between specific things or places in Germany of these years and direct specific artistic responses. You kind of float above the clouds in that way. You know, so a way of pointing to what you didn't do is to look at, say, George Grosch's Painter of the Whole. Grosch was in the United States, makes this painting in the United States. There is in the catalog a photograph by by Richard Peter of the painter Theodore Rosenhauer uh, literally painting in plain air amidst rubble. You know, I, I, I understand why Grosch isn't in the show, but there presumably were plenty of direct relationships between place and moment in artwork that, that might have been every bit that tidy that you could have made. And I 
guess my question is, did you think consciously about not wanting to make the package that neat? Yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, it makes us work a little bit harder, right? I also think, you know, the the painter, Theodore Rosenhauer, you know, does not figure in the exhibition himself, right? Because um, that also wasn't necessarily the kind of artistic response that, you know, that I was really trying to engage with, right? He wasn't necessarily maybe one of those artists at the forefront of really trying to reintroduce the public to modern art and to, you know, uh, engage in his own um, practice at that time in perhaps a more nuanced way, right? And it's not to say that there aren't artists in the exhibition who also sketched and painted the ruins. We we have a number of them, but I really did want to let the work speak. And often there is the danger when you've sort of spent so much time with a period to, you know, in order to describe it or to order to make that point, to fall back on, on something that might be a bit more didactic. And instead I thought, you know, there are so many works in the exhibition that actually are kind of open for discussion. I think they're actually kind of pushing us to to really think hard. And that in, in some ways, you know, that is the quality of, of a good artist and a, and a good artwork, right? That it's not kind of, and I'm not saying at all that um, George Groth um, is not a, uh, an incredibly talented and important artist, but he's also coming at this from his perspective, right? Uh, which is, again, you know, the, the perspective of someone who left Germany, which gave him a different kind of view, right? Finally, you write in the introduction to the catalog that the last year or so of American life has raised what you described as, quote, questions of my own regarding the role of the individual in the political process. What kinds of things did you think through about the present that impacted how you thought about the past? Well, I mean, given that I was thinking about the past pretty much all the time, right, I think, you know, I often think about the present, you know, as it's kind of mirrored in the past. I mean, I think as a as an art historian, you know, we 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 do that all the time, right? I mean, why mount an exhibition at all about German art of the 40s and 50s if there isn't something that can still resonate, right, with audiences and something that we can still learn from in our in our own present day realities? And it's true. I, I mentioned that in the acknowledgments where I definitely got more personal than I think I, I have in the past, and it really was because I felt very strongly that you know a lot of even the imagery of the war and the experience of, you know, just thinking my own experience of just thinking so much actually about uh, the Second World War and the Holocaust and then more specifically the fate of, you know, these particular 48 artists and, and how they kind of went about their sort of pursuit of their own artistic practice during the war and after, I just started to feel very strongly that there was a lot that that we could learn about humanity and about a a certain healthy skepticism, which I see in a lot of the work of of the immediate post-war period in technology and industrial uh, advances and what actually, you know, again, to, to Werner Held, right, uh, the things that we make and create and our, and our kind of belief that we're, we're just going to, those things are going to be around forever, right? You know, you can parse that out in all kinds of different ways in, in our current sort of global world. And, and for me, you know, I, I think 
the attention that I felt was necessary to pay to the, as you say, sort of, you know, to maybe have a bit more of a nuanced view and to really present this work to, to open up a discussion and sort of, you know, get people thinking and, and looking closely, that kind of nuanced view to say we are going to, you know, we're going to sort of set aside a, a kind of black and white thinking or good and bad, right, which is often how we have learned to think about this particular period. And I think, again, I, I felt was very rampant now in our language, in the way that we talk about a lot of things in, in this country. And so, it, you know, it was, it was sort of working for me on, on a number of, of different levels. And I do hope that people, you know, are able to see, as I've said before, you know, the, the kinds of lessons that come out of, of history. And I actually mentioned specifically Timothy Snyder's on tyranny, which is something that I was then reading as I was, you know, writing or sort of finishing the writing of my uh, introduction for the catalog. And, you know, I think, I think he's, you know, he's absolutely right, right? There's so many lessons that we've not maybe paid attention to as uh, Americans that I think Europeans have learned in the 20th century. In a related story, there are a lot of Tony Ute references in, in your essay, too, which seems... Oh, yes. Well, such uh, a... Which seems about right. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's... And that's something, too, where, you know... You know, he was looking. You know, he was looking at at the 20th century and 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 giving us also a, a a new perspective, right? And again, I think something about you know, I think this exhibition, you know, to to talk about the book post-war that I do reference the Tony Ute book. Yes, quite frequently. You know, that that was a book that he himself says was only possible after 1989, right? That these kinds of this kind of binary of of the Cold War, right? That, that had to be rethought. And I feel like that also made, you know, this kind of work possible, right? Because we're able to, to maybe not see it as and absolutely inevitable, right, that that Germany ends up divided. And, you know, we just had, I was just reading the other day that, you know, the Berlin Wall was just, has been gone uh, just recently for as many, exactly as many years, months, and days as it had been standing, right? So you realize, like, how, ago, yeah. yeah, just a few days ago. So you realize how quickly time is passing, Right. And how do we kind of continue to to think about history and think about, you know, what what lessons there are to learn? And, you know, I I love art and I and I believe actually I do believe very strongly in in the power of of art to tell us um, a lot about the the human condition and, and the human experience. And, um, and I, you know, I felt this was a story that it was time to share. Lynette Roth, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on again. I, I really enjoyed it. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum, features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays 
at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is J. Paul Getty Museum curator Maisie Harris. Her new exhibition is Paper Promises, Early American Photography. It's at the Getty from Tuesday, February 27th, and it's on view through May 27th. The show examines why daguerreotypes loving Americans were so much slower to embrace paper photography, that's photographs printed on paper, than other nations, and what prompted the belated switch. The terrific catalog for the exhibition is full of surprising history and is published by the Getty. I loved reading it. Amazon lists it at $50. Maisie Harris, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. One of the themes I got out of reading your catalog essays, and especially seeing the pictures you've selected for this show and for the book, is that as photography moved away from daguerreotypes, which, as we all know, are images printed on silver-plated copper that were often handheld, as, as images moved from daguerreotypes and onto paper, that there was this enormous scramble to figure out what the heck this new thing could be for and how it could be used. Is, is, is that roughly the story of the show and how does it play out? Yes, absolutely. I think one thing that's interesting for me is that it's, it's often easy to sort of tell history in this kind of evolutionary way as though one thing led really nicely to another. But I think it's much more messy and interesting than that, which is that these technologies are all sort of coexisting and kind of jockeying for attention. So I think, for example, of the there's a Frederick's picture in the exhibition, Frederick's Temple of Art, and he, he lists on the, the facade of his building, you know, photographs, daguerreotypes, amber types. So I think it's really important to remember that all of these these technologies are sort of in, in the world at the same time. And so the, for me, the the show is really thinking about, you know, why would a photographer pick one of these? Why would a consumer pick one of these if you have all these options to choose from? You know, how, how do they exist differently in the world and, and what was interesting about each of them? What were the kind of potentials of each of them and the liabilities of, of each of those different options? We think of daguerreotypes today as as being kind of personal documents, things that, that, that people would, would send home a portrait of themselves or whatnot. How does the, the transition from daguerreotypes to paper change the function, use, role of a photograph in American life? Yeah, I think that's right. There's a historian who talks about terminal commodities, this idea that certain things have a sort of set realm in which they can move. And so for daguerreotypes, it's great. They're perfect for sharing with family and friends, tight-knit circles. I think, you know, they're really great on that kind of one-on-one level of exchange. 
And so then when you start to have images that can be made in multiple on paper, I think it's important to, to think about both of those characteristics. You know, you can have something in multiple, it can be sent to multiple people and it's on paper, so it can be sent more easily. And so I think you, you're able to start to send things further afield. They can be disseminated much more widely. So you start to have things like celebrities taking it up. It, it's it's one thing for me, you know, <laughs> but I probably only would have needed daguerreotypes, right? I'm only sending them to like a small circle of, of family and friends. But for celebrities or for politicians, it's really a way to start to, to manage their image more widely. So there are portraits in the show, and we'll come to one or two of them in a minute. But what are some of the other uses that photographers and the business end of their operation and even you know, government or businesses, what what are some of the uses they began to find for paper photography starting in around 1860-61? Right, right away, I think you have people scrambling to sort of think about all the different potential, you know, all the different ways that these could be used. And so you have lawyers thinking about how they might be able to introduce them as evidence. You have scientists thinking about how they might be useful for scientific endeavor, for sharing images rather than having to circulate samples, for example. You have different regions thinking about how to bolster tourism. Uh, I think it's it's very quick that they sort of take on a lot of the, or try to really rival a lot of what printmaking was doing. I include in the book some of the earliest times in which photographs were used as book illustration. And in the ads for that, you know, they're really pushing against printmaking and saying, you know, this this can really rival wood cutting, wood engraving, things like that. So I think they're they're really scrambling to think of if how this medium might be able to kind of coexist along with printmaking. You also get kind of a new language around the use of paper photographs where people talk about the images, photographic images on paper as being truthful or or honest or immediately it becomes clear you don't have to, not having an intermediary, not having a, a, an engraver have to, having to make an image from a picture, but actually having the picture itself becomes important. I think so. For the scientists, they, they thought that was hugely important. But at the same time that they're claiming that and using photographs to to impart scientific knowledge because of that sort of documentary capacity, they're also including lithographs alongside the photographs so that they can choose and select and emphasize certain things. So I think there's that kind of rhetoric but that sometimes the practical the practical manipulations of photography weren't talked about as much, but were certainly a part of the story. I mean, for me, some of the most interesting material that came out of the research is the negative language about the potential for negative positive photography. I mean, you think of it as nothing but a great, you know, an obviously helpful kind of tool that you could have. But in fact, there was a lot of anxiety about about what could come with with negative positive photography. I am going to uh, name a couple of uh, the uses of paper photographs that we see in the show, and I'm hoping maybe you can name a favorite picture or two that that demonstrates that. First one, tourism. Oh, that's tough. There's some great ones. Uh, There are some absolutely great ones. 
the the views of the White Mountains are beautiful. These these whipple black views of the White Mountains. They're just incredible. They're so dark. They're so rich. And in the exhibition, I have a really beautiful example. But in the book, what I love is that there's also a detail from one where they've sort of added in a little a house with graphite. And so again, you can see that this this potential for, you know, on-site capture is there, but, but they also feel free to supplement when necessary. There's also a great picture of uh, Mount Vernon in 1859, and among the many things that's interesting about the picture is that it's 1859 and not, you know, two years later. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's what's been fun about this project is starting to find some of these earlier images in historic societies and in a lot of different archives and I think that'll be a real revelation to people. We tend to think of this as the Daguerrean era, but it's really, there's a there's a lot more experimentation with negative positive photography in the 1850s than I think we've, we've thought about before. Another use that pops up throughout the show is land purchasing, selling, and border, property border defining. Do you have a favorite from, from that group? I think the the Philadelphia images are really fascinating to me. You have the antiquarians gathering images of the city, the new construction, the old construction, you know, the houses that are being torn down to make way for other things. And so you have these sort of this really fascinating glimpse of a city in flux. And I think that's so much of the way that we use photography today is, is already present in, in those early images. How did government and its tentacles begin to use paper photography in the 1860s? There are a lot of different examples of that in the exhibition and in the book. One of the ways that's interesting to me is in the patent office. You have different people applying for photography patents, and it's it's really difficult to gauge who's first and how their technique might differ, differ from other techniques. So one of the patent examiners, Titian Peel, started making his own photographs and really testing out some of these different applications that were being submitted. So you have the government really trying to assess who gets to stake claim to these huge photographic ideas. And of course, this is a time when so much of photography is really being imported from Europe. And so Americans are trying to take credit for ideas that were already sort of in popular circulation. So the government's really trying to understand how to assign patents to to specific individuals and whether Americans should should be eligible for patents at all. So I think that that patent material is is gives a really interesting insight into how the government was involved in the development of photography. Those Titian Ramsey Peel pictures you're referencing are of Pierce Mill in Washington D.C., just above Washington's Cleveland Park neighborhood, and right down the hill from from where I used to live. So, <laughs> um, those definitely caught my eye. The last area I'll ask for um, a couple of favorites in is is science and how we see the importance of science in the spread of paper photography. Yeah, it's there in different ways. I mean, one thing that's interesting about the Americans working with paper photography is they come with a lot of different motivations. A lot, Several of them are just entrepreneurs. They're just trying to figure out how to exploit this new technique and in a way that will be, you know, most market friendly. But then you have others who are coming to it with a scientific mindset, trying to understand what the different formulas meant, how they might be employed. So you have someone like Robert Montgomery Bird, who is 
one of these great 19th century characters. He's a novelist trained in, in medicine and a journalist occasionally. I think he ran for politics. But you have him really trying out these different formulas that he's reading about. And there's a wonderful series in a library company in Philadelphia where he's just looking out his window and making negatives and recording very carefully on the bottom the different formulas that he's using. So I think you have that sort of scientific mindset of trying to understand what this new technology is and how weather conditions affect it, how paper, how chemicals affect it. But then you also have others who are taking it up purely for illustration and so there's really beautiful examples of early fossil photographs in the book and the exhibition. In the book, there's a incredible sort of fossilized footprint that would have been an incredible interest at the time. This is a time when they're really starting to try to grapple with fossils and what that means for understanding the, the kind of global history. This is the moment that Darwinism is arriving in America through Asa Gray. Yeah. Right, right. So photography becomes wrapped up in that. And in the exhibition, there's there's a, a beautiful, it's fossilized raindrops, and it looks like this just incredible abstraction, but but it's instead capturing, you know, this important, this important, important moment in science. I promised portraiture, and there are some just bonkers portraits in this show. One of them is of a guy named George W. Gale. It's a picture in the Getty's own collection just what is this picture and maybe explain to people why I'm so flabbergasted by it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is quite a thing. I sort of think of it as the Dr. Bronner soap of 19th century photography. So it's a portrait of a man holding a book, but all around the photograph is incredible, tightly written script, his sort of uh, ideas about the world. And then in the book he's holding an image, it's also full of of, of script about about his the, sort of... The ethos. book he's holding in his hand is, has, has ink written script on it. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So you get this idea again of the ability... Uh, one of the great things about negative positive photography is you can write on it, right? With a daguerreotype you could tuck in a note, but with a paper photograph you could write on it, you could write around it, you can really supplement the image or anchor the image with with these textual uh, observations and so it's it's a really wacky and wonderful piece i think it gives so much of the the flavor of 19th century interest in in this material my favorite little detail in in the gale picture is that in addition to all this handwriting around the photographic print and the the handwriting on the book that gale is holding but he is also in ink given himself eyeballs. He, is, he <laughs> yeah. has outlined his eyeballs with two little circles. Yes, yes. It's so hard to capture. I mean, so often when you see early paper prints, the tie of some, you know, someone's tie will have been inked in or their hairline will have been, you know, corrected. So I think it's it's great that the people who worked on the book were really able to show those details so that you can see some of the hand touches. There's another great image in that same section of the exhibition that shows a guy smoking a pipe and they've been very careful to sort of paint in the smoke coming out of the pipe. So again, it's it's this ability to manipulate photographic images as much as they're interested in and relying on some idea of veracity. There's also this ability to, to change it to, to best convey what you need from your portrait. Yeah, that's a picture that's at the that's also at the Getty. We'll have um, images of both of them on manpodcast.com. The other portrait I wanted to ask about is uh, one of the more 
remarkable historical documents in the show. It's the Frederick Douglass portrait. And one of the things that makes it amazing is what is written below the picture. Uh, yes, there's the price. I think it's 25 cents a copy. Yes, I think there's a great book out recently by John Stauffer who talks about how thoughtful Frederick Douglass was about circulating images of himself, really taking photography and painting as a way of, of getting his image out there, of getting a sense of upright and dignified African-American in, in that era. So he's he's not only a fiery speaker, but he's really thoughtful about the, the visual image he projects as well. That's a, a beautiful loan from the National Portrait Gallery. We're so lucky to have it. If you notice underneath, though, the name, I thought it was his signature. I was quite excited about that, but it's spelled, the, the name is spelled differently. So it, it might have just been a, a caption at the time. It leaves out a letter from his first yes. name. <laughs> I, I, I lied. I have one more portrait I wanted to ask about. It's it's a portrait from the Brady studio of, of Harriet Hosmer. And first, who was, who was Hosmer? And secondly, you mentioned a moment ago that often there is painting or drawing on, on these paper prints. The Hosmer portrait is an example of that. How so? Oh, it's fantastic. Again, in reproduction, you're not maybe able to see initially that it's that it's been inked in, but if you look very closely at the image and in the exhibition, you'll be able to see how beautifully and delicately it's been hand-painted. It's really with a kind of grisaille so that it, it keeps the kind of character of the photograph, but brings out the texture of the drapery and of, of, of the fabric on her and in the background. Hosmer was a sculptor, a very important sculptor at the time, quite prominent, and I, I love this idea that she, in her own work, really used sculptural reproduction to circulate her material and to um, emphasize the importance of what she was doing. And so I love that there's this photograph that, which is able to do the same thing, right? You're similarly able to reproduce in different sizes an image to get it out into the, a, a wider audience. And I just, I love that, you know, she in her own work makes these, these beautiful um, soft sculptures. And so it's, it's really wonderful that that same interest in texture is, is conveyed in the, the careful hand coloring. That's a great loan from the Harvard museums. You know, I haven't asked about what may have been the most important or consequential use of paper photography, and that is pictures of the landscape used in court cases and to resolve land claim disputes. And this sounds obscure now, but if, if we go back to the 1850s, I mean, even the 1840s, people, especially in the West, but also in the East, had kind of fuzzy notions of where their land began and ended and where the next person's land began and ended. So maybe the clearest, maybe the best way to illustrate this is, is with a story about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln grows up in, in Kentucky, which is a slave state, and his family was preparing to buy some land and was planning to buy it in Kentucky and then discovered or found or realized that property borders in Kentucky were just a total mess, that, that land ownership inevitably resulted in expensive litigation. And so they crossed the Ohio River and, and bought land in the north instead. And this had a really big impact on, on Lincoln and his understanding of, of slavery, white labor, anti-slavery, and the rest. So how does paper photography play a key role in, in these kinds of disputes and cases? You're right to point to this. It's such an important part of this 
period, I include a map in the beginning of the exhibition that shows the sort of shifting boundaries in the 1850s. I mean, my joke was that the subtitle of this exhibition should be photography in the not so United States. I mean, the, the, the borders were just absolutely different than we think of them today. And we're constantly shifting. You know, I picked sort of 1854, but, you know, three months later, you know, things would have would have been quite different. And there's a map at the end of the exhibition that gives a sense of those con continuing, continually shifting borders during the Civil War as well. So if you think of this time in which borders are so important and yet so difficult to define photography, it's understandable that that there would be interest in, in bringing photography in to try to make sense of this. So the, the, the great examples in the exhibition are by Carlton Watkins of land claims in what is now Oakland. And I actually think it's wonderful to have this kind of historic resonance. You know, we think of these areas where gentrification and land use continue to be really fraught and really a matter of great public debate. And so as Christine Holt Lewis describes in her essay in the book, there are many people staking claim to the same area in, in what is present day Oakland in the Bay Area. There's squatters, there's the Californias who were there prior. And, and so the courts are really trying to differentiate between all these claims and they, they sort of just need to know, you know, what are the landmarks? How do we even define these borders? And so Carlton Watkins takes photos to try to, to help the court decide that case. And, and Christine describes that really wonderfully in her essay in the catalog. Photography was regarded or what came to be regarded as so truthful, to use the 19th century word, that in Watkins's case, there are times where he works for both sides. <laughs> Of, of a court case, and everybody seemed to have been fine with that. Yeah, one of the interesting <laughs> things in, in doing this project is you realize that the government is, you know, I don't know, if the government's just as dysfunctional <laughs> as it is now. But yeah, he's working for both sides. And what I think is interesting about that is they, there is some pressure to describe them as truthful, but there's also understanding of how situational it is, how important it is, where you're placed, the choices the photographer makes, the cropping, the the point of view. And so I think, again, there's this this real kind of push-pull between photography as this kind of truthful document and something that can be, you know, manipulated both in its production and, and its display. Finally, one of the great stories in, in the book is the story of the relationship between paper photography and paper money. And, and just to set it up before I ask you what that story is, these are two things that are coming into being, especially in the East, at the same time. In the West, they cling to gold, you know, for several decades after the rest of the country goes to paper money. But what is what is the relationship between paper photography and paper money? Yeah, it's it's a time in American history when we had no national currency. Each bank was printing its own money, and so it caused. A lot of problems, as you could imagine, if you had Boston money and you traveled to New York, your Boston money might not be worth as much because it's from this bank that's so far away. So each bank is, is printing its own bills. And in doing so, they're trying to give a sense of authority by putting images of presidents or reputable figures on the money to try to encourage people to have faith in this in this paper thing. But in fact, there was an incredible amount of forgery. Historians estimate that around 40% of the banknotes in circulation were being forged. And so it was a time in which 
people had very little faith in paper money. The idea would be to to just exchange it as quickly as you could. And if you could, to, as you say, rely on gold or silver on some kind of specie that kept its its value. So photography again became wrapped up in this. Imagine how few people had seen a paper negative, how few people understood how photography worked. And so some of the early reports about negative positive photography was that they were being that that the technique was being used to forge bank bills and there were this you know this news article appears and then of course quickly spreads through all the different papers that photography is being used to make counterfeit money now at the time money was one-sided in in black and white and so eventually this this worry about photographic forgery pushed a move towards what we call greenbacks, which are green, meaning there's color, which photography couldn't replicate, and they're backed, meaning they're two-sided. So again, that would be more difficult for photography. So it was fascinating to see the kind of alarm about this idea of photographic forgery in the time. And one of the photographers I discuss in the book gets his process in particular gets wrapped up into this. And and then to try to go look for these was really difficult. You know, I went through numismatic collections looking for them. And finally was able to find a couple. So I was excited to to include them in the exhibition and in the book. But one of the photographers says, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't think these do such a great job of photo of, of counterfeiting money, but ooh, they could really forge a signature. And so then, you know, you can imagine there's all these other sort of anxieties about how photography could be used. And it's still to this day, I mean, you know, you're not supposed to I think it's illegal to put money on a photocopier. So I think still we have this worry about how these technologies might be able to to work, you know, in ways that that make us uncomfortable as well as ways that are positive. So paper money looks the way it looks and is two-sided the way it is substantially as a response to paper photography growing up at the same time? Well, that's what, yeah, that's what numismatics scholars say. And that's why it was interesting to me to to look for them and have such a hard time finding them. So I think, in fact, it's it's a great example of how you hear reports about a technology often before you've encountered the technology yourself. And there's often this, you know, kind of optimistic idea about all the new technology can do, but there's also often attendant alarm about what might happen. I mean, I think we all remember early cell phone, you know, photography. There was great anxiety about what this was going to mean and and how there were going to be pictures circulating that we didn't want. That was true when Kodak first came out as well, right? Like, women, be careful. You're, you're going to have your photo taken without without your knowledge. So I think anytime we have these new technologies, there's, there's excitement as well as a lot of worry about what, what might be in, what might, what it might entail. That essay in the book also reminded me of an art historical thing. You know, we, we, especially in the United States, photographic historians are in one silo, especially within the academy and institutions like museums and paintings historians are in another silo. Whereas in the 19th century, makers, artists, photographers, painters, all considered themselves, you know, until the, until the 1890s, late 1890s, all part of the same soup. And they took ideas and compositions and subjects and points of view from each other and, and riffed, not just directly, but riffed on each other's work. And so this has to be surely an example of that as photographers are playing with money and the question of paper money and paper photography is coming about at almost the exact same time we see paper money working its way into Trump Lloyd painting. 
Yeah, that's a little bit later, but yeah, I think it's related to similar kind of anxieties about the gold standard. I think, yeah, you see so much paper money in trompe l'oeil painting, but I think you're right. There is a lot of exchange between, it It shows, I think, not just the relationship between painting and photography, but printmaking and photography. That's something that was really important to me to get at in this exhibition. You know, I think when you looked at the photographic catalogs of the time, many, many, many of the photographs that were being sold were reproductions of prints. And so sure, there were reproductions of paintings as well, but there is a, a much tighter relationship between photography and printmaking than, than we tend to talk about. I think photography was often thought of as a reproductive print process. It was really thought of as a new form, almost, you know, a, a next step in maybe wood engraving, for example. But but I think you're right that they they did think of themselves differently. You know, so many photographers of the time called themselves photographists to, to think of themselves as artists. So <laughs> Maisie Harris, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.